So that's Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn, them, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Those of you who don't know me, my name's Johnny, I'm one of the elders here um, at the gate. Let me get rid of this. If I've not met you, I don't normally sound like this. The sermon this morning is totally dependent on that mint that Johnny just gave me. Um, I know a lot of you have been feeling ill, so uh, good to see you um, there with you. Um, cool, so let's start with the game. Okay, um, the, the game is this. What is the link between the three people or group pictures on the screen, the link between Colin Kaepernick, the American football player, the Iran football team against England the other day, and the so-called tank man from Tiananmen Square in 1989. And I'm not going to kind of open that up. I'm just going to give you the answer, to be honest. It's not really a game, is it? Um, the, the, the answer is, is simply that they all responded to the oppression and injustice of their enemies in an unexpected way. Not with loud shouts or violence, or even lobbying, but with silence. Kaepernick took the knee instead of uh, singing the national anthem in protest against racial injustice. Uh, likewise, the Iran football team kind of didn't sing the national anthem to protest against the Iranian government. And this guy, Tankman, as he's come to be known, in 1989 just stood there in front of these tanks um, in protest, kind of a, a powerful symbol of him standing up to the authorities in Tiananmen Square. And it's often these quiet and unexpected responses to one's enemies which prove the most powerful. They become these symbols behind global movements far more often than angry protests, uh, violent scenes, or, or Twitter arguments in our own day and age. And, and to see what relevance this has to where we are this morning, let me just remind you that last week, well, we're in Luke's Gospel, and last week Jesus began teaching his followers about what it's like in his kingdom, what life is like in his kingdom. And he taught that this kingdom was for the poor and the persecuted. And this would have come as a huge shock because the people sat listening to Jesus on the plane had begun to believe that he was God's long-awaited king who had come to set them free from their enemies, their oppressive enemies, the Romans. God's king they believed, would come wielding the sword to purge the Holy Land of the Romans. And here's Jesus talking about his kingdom being for the poor and the persecuted. 
But Jesus was saying, listen, this is how God's kingdom will be victorious. It will crush its enemies. It will defeat oppression and injustice in a very unexpected way. And this through meekness, through grief, and through persecution. And it wasn't bad news at all. Jesus was saying, this is the blessed life. Because while you're poor, hungry, and persecuted now, to you belongs the victorious kingdom of God, which will triumph over your enemies, be that the Romans in the first century listeners or whoever that might be for us now. And so today's passage, we have to see, is the logical next phase of teaching that comes after what we saw last week from the blessings and the woes. If God's kingdom belongs to the poor, the meek, and the persecuted... If God's kingdom will prove victorious in an unexpected way, not by simply blowing our enemies away, well, in light of this, how then should we treat our enemies? How then should we respond to those who do us harm, who've treated us oppressively, unjustly, and ultimately sinfully? And the importance of this um, cannot be overstated. As we'll go on to see in today's passage, Jesus teaches that a person displays which kingdom they belong to by how they respond to the hatred, injustice, and sin done to them by others. A person shows whether they belong to Jesus' kingdom by how they respond to their enemies. So these are the kind of stakes on the table. These are the questions on the table this morning. As Christians belonging to this type of kingdom, this upside down and unexpected kingdom, what should our response be to our enemies, firstly? And secondly, why should we respond in this way? The what and the why of a Christian response to enemies. That's where we're headed today, the what and the why of a Christian response to our enemies. So please have your Bibles open. I can't remember what page that was, 1035, was it? Yeah, four, four. Basically to check that what I'm saying is what Jesus says. There's some scandalous things he says here. So to keep, keep that open, um, to do that, if you would. So first of all, what is a Christian response to our enemies? Well, Jesus says to that question, he, he responds to that question like this. Christians are to delay or withhold retribution with something better than justice. That is undeserved kindness. And let me just say, by retribution here, I just mean instead of giving people what they deserve for their sins against us, Christians are to withhold this punishment, this retribution, with something better. They're to offer undeserved kindness. So I'm just going to break that down. So firstly, Christians are to delay or withhold retribution. Look at um, verses 27 and 28 of chapter 6. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. You see, Jesus is addressing all of us who've been treated harshly or badly or sinned against in any way, which, to be honest, is probably all of us, in ways that we don't deserve or didn't deserve. And the reason this message is so scandalous is because it would be wholly just, wouldn't it? It would be justice. It would be fair to hate those who hate us, to curse those who curse us, and to mistreat those who mistreat us. That would be justice done on the spot. But Jesus says, no, no, in my kingdom, don't do that. 
withhold, delay, put off your desire for immediate justice by doing the exact opposite to what you would expect. Love those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And let's be clear, it's not that our desire for justice here is wrong. Jesus isn't correcting our desire for justice. Absolutely not. Our desire for justice comes from being made in the image of God, who is just. He is the God of justice. But because God has promised to one day judge every act of evil and sin, citizens of his kingdom can look to that day of judgment, knowing firstly that justice will be done, and secondly, that they themselves don't have to be the one to exact the punishment. Only really knowing that are we free to do good to our enemies instead of dishing out the punishment, no matter how much that punishment fits the crime done against us. Because justice is coming, we can delay retribution. So that's our our first thing. But um, secondly, the second thing Jesus says is that not only are we to withhold retribution, no matter how just that retribution might be, but we have to offer our enemies something better than justice. Scandalously, followers of Jesus are to give undeserved kindness to their enemies. Have a look from verse 29. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Jesus is saying, don't just withhold from your enemies what they deserve. Give them what they don't deserve. See the difference there? So I'll say that again. Don't just withhold from them what they deserve. Give them what they don't deserve. And we have to be really careful here. Jesus isn't saying, for example, that a Christian should remain in an abusive relationship where she or he is unsafe. That's not what's going on here. Jesus clearly condemns those powerful men in his society who created laws in God's name which would oppress vulnerable women. Jesus is not saying that. He isn't isn't advocating unsafety or being unwise, but rather that simply when people wrong us, we should respond, whatever the right response should be, with kindness in that response. And this will inevitably mean 101 different things for 101 different people. For that colleague who always airs your failures in meetings, it might mean looking out for the best in them and publicly praising them for it. For that family member who wronged you all those years ago, it might mean committing to pray earnestly for them daily. For the spouse who's just squandered money on drink and gambling, it might mean responding with the offer to take them out for a meal. For the lazy council worker who's just given you an unfair decision on your housing situation, it might be as simple as wishing them a good weekend and thanking them for their time. Jesus summarizes his message, verse 31. Do to others, even to your enemies, as you would have them do to you. So that's the the what of a Christian response to our enemies. But secondly, and really importantly, why should we respond to our enemies in this way? This is the nub of it, really. 
Well, again, let me just give you Jesus' answer to it, and then we'll unpack it um, from there. But Jesus says that we should respond to our enemies like this, because in so doing, we display our citizenship in and the truth of Jesus' kingdom. We display our citizenship in and the truth of his kingdom. And to show that, let me just correct something which we might might have mistaken in our minds, which is related to this. It might seem a bit of a curveball, but it's not. We we, we might be thinking that Jesus is talking here to to everyone everywhere, okay? A kind of ethical soundbite for the world, which society at large even may love. You know, kind of love your enemies, do good to all, that kind of thing. And we all say, yeah, that sounds great. And we go on a merry way. But no, look at the start of verse 27. Who is Jesus speaking to? But to you who are listening, I say. Now, this, or like those who have ears to hear, this is this or something similar is Jesus' usual way of speaking directly to his followers as opposed from the rest of the world, those who are coming along for the the ride. So he is addressing Christians here. He's addressing Christians, not the world at large. So he's saying something like this: listen, my followers. When you respond to your enemies like this, you will be so distinctive from those around you that no one will fail to see that you belong to me and in my kingdom. And we see that even more clearly in verses 32 to 34, where Jesus contrasts his followers with sinners, right? By which he means people who have chosen not to follow him. Look look down at, at verse 32 onwards. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, What credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Do you see, we can convince ourselves that we are being distinctly Christian because we love those who we find lovable. We do good to those who do good to us, etc. But Jesus is saying, listen, there is nothing distinctive about that. Of course you do that. And of course you should do that. But that kind of love and goodness is nothing different from the rest of the world. The principle at work there is that is, is one of justice. We naturally give people what they deserve. You do good to me, I'll do good to you. It sounds about right, doesn't it? But if we never go further than that, we reveal that our minds and our hearts are more influenced by this world than the God we profess to worship. Because after all, who is the God we worship? And how were we even brought into this kingdom in the first place? Because the Bible says, doesn't it, that we, that before we were Christians, we were enemies of God. Romans 5 verse 10 and other places. God had lavished good on us by creating our world, by creating us and calling us to enjoy everything he gave us for his glory, and yet we did him wrong. 
We sinned, we spurned him, setting ourselves up as the kings and the queens of our own lives, using the resources and the gifts God gave us to enjoy for his glory, for our own glory, building our own kingdoms to the praise of our name. We did not praise God, but we mistreated him. We didn't bless God, but we cursed him. Indeed, the Bible says that as a result, we were, in and of ourselves, naturally enemies of God. And we read throughout Scripture that we would never have entered God's kingdom unless, unless what? Unless God had loved his enemies. Unless God had done good to you and me, not only lending without expecting anything back, but giving us every eternal and spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, free of charge, knowing that it's not only that we could not pay it back, but that we will not pay it back, even if we chose to. He withheld nothing apart from his own retribution. He's not only refused to give us what we deserve, but he's given us what we don't deserve eternal life with him. You know, looking back on the time before you were a Christian, or you were an enemy of God, guilty of cosmic crimes far worse than can ever be done to you and to me, aren't aren't you glad, aren't I glad that God delayed his justice? Of course, for all outside of Christ, he's promised a day coming when those who still refuse this lavish kindness of God will indeed receive the judgment for their sins. Jesus speaks of a very real place called hell where justice will be done. But aren't you overjoyed that he delayed that day? That he delayed his retribution for your sins in order to offer you something far better than justice, in order to offer you his undeserved kindness in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that day still stands today. If you haven't come to God in Jesus because he has delayed his judgment so that you would never receive the punishment due for your sins, so that you'd only receive his grace. And so why, verse 35, does Jesus call us to love our enemies, do good to to them, and lend to them without expecting anything back? Well, again, verse 35, by this, we show ourselves to be children of this God, the God most high who has treated us, his enemies, in exactly this way. Verse 35, again, we reveal that the free reward of eternal life with him is real and it is great and it is ours through his kindness and grace. So here is the why. Here is why we should love our enemies with undeserved kindness because, verse 35, he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's you and me. Therefore, verse 36, be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. And it might be that you're, you're sat there kind of wishing that I would say more about what it looks like, therefore, for Christians to obey the Bible's call to, to pursue justice and to bring about a transformed world. And that's a very legitimate kind of question. You know, how does what Jesus says here fit with that? And I just, I just think the more I've thought, I just wonder, like, isn't that all here in this passage? How we, how we pursue justice? 
How did God achieve justice for our sins and achieve our transformation? Well, on one night under clear Palestinian skies, Jesus Christ was arrested unjustly by his enemies and he stood silently accused. Well, Peter reacts in an all-too-human way. You remember the story? He gets his sword out and he lops the guy's ear off. But Jesus lovingly heals his enemy, calling him friend. And then Jesus was unjustly led away by that guy who he's just healed, by those he created to be beaten and to be whipped and to be led up a hill to have nails put through his hands for you and me, his enemies. If there was ever an act of supreme evil and injustice and yet an example of love for enemies, this was surely it. He hung there dripping blood on a, on a Roman cross. And while he did that, what did he do? He prayed for those who put him there. He asked for them to be forgiven. He blessed those who cursed him. And by his death, he not only justly achieved our forgiveness of sins for all who put their trust in him, but importantly for us who ask how this fits with pursuing justice, he transformed us. It transformed us, his enemies, his sinful and hardened enemies. He made us children of God whose hearts melted when we experienced his undeserved kindness to us who didn't deserve it. Through the death of Christ, God brought justice for sin by loving his enemies. And this love is what has turned the world upside down ever since. Brothers and sisters who want to see an end to the sin, evil, and injustice in this world and the sin done to us, which is all of us, do you think we can achieve this in any other way than laying our lives down in love after the pattern of the cross? Jesus said to Peter, still holding that blood-stained sword with an ear lying on the floor, he said, for all who draw the sword shall die by the sword. In the same way, those who use loud shouts will be those who are shouted at. Those who want to win the argument will have their reward in full. Those who want to lift up one oppressed group by tearing another down are only re-employing the very same tactics that they denounce. Now, this is how we fight for justice against our enemies. Jesus gave us as clear a picture as any of how to do it, and it is a picture of which Colin Kaepernick and the Tank Man and the Iranian football team are only the faintest of echoes. This is the picture of how God silenced and transformed his enemies. At the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God due his enemies. He used his last breath to pray for those who hammered nails through his wrists. And in so doing, he transformed our hearts to go and do likewise. To display not only the fact that we now belong to a new kingdom of the meek and the persecuted, but also to display the victory of his kingdom, which in the world today is quietly revolutionizing the hearts of his enemies and will soon be seen in all of its heavenly glory. Well, some of you may have, um, just get that light, it's really dark in December, isn't it? <clears throat> some of you may have um, read or seen, it's a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine, actually, um, the, the uh, book slash film Les Miserables by, by Victor Hugo. 
Um, the two main characters in that story are Jean Valjean on the one hand, he's a man angry at the world after being kept in prison for years, after, after stealing a loaf of bread and, and breaking his parole. And then you've got Javert, who's this policeman who will stop at nothing to ensure that justice is done. And the way they see the world is like the polar opposite. It's basically a contrast between these two guys. And Valjean is angry at the injustice done to him. So see, he, he believes now that he can basically do whatever he wants and it won't be enough to pay for that injustice done to him that he's received. And Javert is also angry at injustice. But, but he believes that wrongdoers must be corrected by the strong arm of the law. That's, that's the way to to secure justice. And one day while on parole, Valjean is, is put up by this kind bishop in his home and he's given a hearty meal and he's treated like a king for, for the evening. But in the night, with the bishop asleep, Valjean sees his chance for getting justice that he finally deserves. And he runs off into the night with some of the bishop's expensive silverware. Some of you are nodding because you love the film or the book. Um, and, and of course, Javert is the one who catches up with him, right? Javert hauls Valjean back before the bishop, asking the bishop to verify this criminal and, and the crimes that, that he's just committed. And the bishop looks at Valjean with compassion and this guy who's just sinned against him. And instead of agreeing to his identity and the justice that Valjean deserves, the bishop tells Javert that he had in fact gifted Valjean the silverware. But the only thing that had aggrieved him is that actually Valjean had left behind the last bit of the silverware collection. He'd forgotten the most expensive cup, and he does that as he hands Valjean the silver cup. Valjean goes free. And the rest of the story essentially tracked how that one act of undeserved kindness transforms Valjean's heart from an angry man to one who did a, a whole host of good in the same way that the bishop had done to him. Well, friends, isn't that a picture of what God has done for us in Christ? Or what he calls us to now with those who wrong us? I'm just going to close out with one last brief question. It's very brief. We spent a little bit of time thinking about the what and the why of Christian responses to enemies, but I just want to close with a different question, which is who? Who? Many people know the, the, the Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. You know that one? Remember primary school? Uh, basically, the message there is that no one, not even an enemy, is beyond the love and kindness that Jesus calls his followers to. But many, many people don't know how that parable came about. What happened was that a man who was trying to sidestep Jesus' radical call for loving of all people basically said, yeah, but Lord, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus uses the parable to be like, literally anyone, even your enemy. And I think maybe as we see Jesus' scandalous commands to his people, we could be guilty of the same. And so the question that we might be asking is, yeah, but Jesus, who is my enemy? Who is my, who is my enemy? Perhaps the word enemy sounds too strong for any of the relationships in your life. Maybe it doesn't. But if Jesus calls us to this kind of love for those who fit the label enemies... Doesn't Jesus' teaching call us, therefore, to do the same for anyone who does us wrong or harms us or sins against us in whatever way that may be? If this is how we're to treat our enemies, should this not also be the way that you treat your slightly overbearing boss, 
your annoying housemate, your sinful spouse, the friend who has betrayed you, the parent who has wronged you, the gospel family member who absolutely does your nut, the class which never listens, the child who is constantly disobedient. Who are your enemies? Who are those people who make your life hard? And what does it mean to you that you don't need to be the one who secures justice for their sins? What might it look like to offer them undeserved kindness? Well, there will be so many different responses to that and how to apply Jesus' teaching here. So please don't see it as a one-size-fit-all. We're not meeting as gospel families this week, so this will be one to bring to your cell groups and, and, and thrash out what this looks like in your situation. But in any case, Jesus commands us to respond with undeserved kindness. The Bible teaches that at the very least, such a response, I quote, heaps burning coals on your enemies' heads. But at the best... They might just be won over as they see displayed in your kindness the love that God has lavished on you, that they too may repent and be transformed by such love and welcomed into Jesus' unexpected and yet victorious kingdom. Shall I pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, we just bring before you the untold depths of sin done to us and the pain that we bear. Father, the many ills and evils and abuses, mistreatment. And yet, Father, you say to us to love our enemies and bless those who do us wrong. Lord, there is no way that we could do this in and of ourselves but for the power of the Holy Spirit but for the Holy Spirit who has showed us this is the love that you have shown us. Lord, we pray that you would give us a greater understanding and appreciation of our sin and therefore of your love and kindness to us for welcoming us into this kind of kingdom and thereby we would go and we would do likewise. Lord, apply your teaching and truth to each of our hearts and all of the different circumstances you've providentially led us through. And We pray as a church that we would be equipped to help one another do this more and more for your glory. Amen.